Good morning. Oh, this is a good Sunday. And as we are concluding this series, making the main thing the main thing, my hope is that we feel a little bit more equipped. We feel a little bit more as a community that we're a little bit more on the same page, that we're talking about the same things, that we have similar language. We don't want us to be a people that spend all of our energy on religious activities that do not produce an eternal result. So over the past, this will be the fifth week, we've been talking about this small passage, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through, and we're going to get to 20 today, and this idea of the beginning of really the message of the church, that he lived a perfect life, died in our place, physically rose from the dead, and we know that he ascended to heaven, and one day he's coming back in all his glory. And so we have this opportunity this morning to engage in God's word. And so I hope that maybe you have some distractions. My wife is in bed incredibly sick. And I hate that because she's not only my favorite person outside of Jesus. Yeah. But also she's a ministry partner and someone that uh, pours into our children. And so for those of you that serve her service, thank you so much for pouring into our kids and, and stepping into the gap. But it it... It could be this distraction. Maybe you've come in here and you have some issue with a friend. Maybe you come in here and you have some issue with your living arrangement or your grades or having to even go back to school after spring break. My hope is that we don't come in with distractions, but we come in excited that we get to worship King Jesus King together. And so I am going to ask you to talk back when you hear something that challenges you, because we're talking a lot about the resurrection. We, those of us who are church people, we know to clap when the, when the stuff is about the resurrection in the song, and we're going to be talking about the resurrection and the hope that that actually brings for those of us who have trusted Christ. I want to prep you as we walk through this passage that we might, it might bring up some questions. It might bring up some questions about how to engage with people that maybe you know. And so my hope is uh, in our kind of participation opportunity in this sermon later on or in the service, we're going to have the opportunity to ask questions about people in our own lives. How would we engage with them? How would we share the gospel with them? What can we do to be an encouragement to people that we know? And so if someone comes to mind, maybe make a note. Over the past four weeks, we've discussed the first nine verses of this chapter where Paul laid out the message that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried, that he rose on the third day, and then he was seen alive after his death by Peter, the apostles, 500 people all at once, James, Jesus' half-brother, Paul, an enemy against the movement of people who believe that Jesus was God, and Paul's also the one who writes this passage. We discussed that an empty tomb by itself proves nothing, but an empty tomb plus eyewitness reports from family, friends, and foes that Jesus was alive, that they saw him. That starts to build a compelling case, church. This message was so important to many who proclaimed it that not only did no one recant, but many were willing to go to a martyr's death, which many of them did. And they were unwilling to stop proclaiming the good news that God had entered his creation, taken on skin, walked among us, never sinned, died for our sin, was buried, and on the third day was resurrected from the dead. This is a really good message. Not the sermon, but the message. Paul states the facts and then explains that he received a gift. 
not just in his salvation, but being an apostle, a sent one that had seen Jesus alive after he died, and he was sent to preach and proclaim this message. Even though he was once a persecutor, he was an enemy and an opponent of the early Christians. So that's where we leave off, verse 10. We're actually going to get through 10 verses, I promise. So here we go, verse 10. But by the grace of God, Paul says, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. This reminds me a little of Popeye. Anyone else? I am what I am. By the gift of God, the grace, by getting what we, he did not deserve, he is what he is. Not a Pharisee, not a teacher of the law, not, not a student, not a professional engineer. What is he? He is an adopted son of the God Most High. That's where he gets his identity. Oh, if only we lived in that truth as Paul did. He also lived in the fact that Christ had transformed him and he was going to use him as a tool. Paul was just a tool <laughs> for God's mission to seek and save those who are lost in their own sins. God's grace for Paul was not at all in vain. Paul says it had effect. His life change had been dramatically observed. Paul was killing Christians, runs into Jesus alive after he dies, and doesn't just stop killing Christians, he joins them. And he writes two-thirds of the New Testament. And he gets beaten up and tore up throughout all the book of Acts. And so we see that God's grace in Paul's life was this dramatic life change. Um, can we be real? Not all testimonies are like Paul's. Can we be even more real? Most people's testimonies aren't like Paul's, right? We hear Paul's testimony, and maybe you've even heard mine. I was an atheist, I came to know Jesus, blah, 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 Jesus, all right? And, and yet, the transformation, there was this effect that had taken place. But not all are like Paul's. And the testimonies God uses are the ones that we're willing to share, not the ones that we keep quiet about. If you were the most atheist of atheists, but now you're following Jesus, guess what? That was supernatural intervention by God. If you grew up in the church and today you are following Jesus, that is supernatural intervention by God. Hallelujah. The point is not the circumstance of your story. Look at me. The point is not the circumstance of your story. It is the intervention of God that matters. That's what we testify to. In fact... Because we're talking about the resurrection, second week in a row, in particular, we talk about the resurrection every week, just being real. But with the resurrection, hear me, anyone's Christian testimony is supernatural. So you might be like, well, I didn't do what this person did, and I didn't, no, 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 no. You believe in a resurrected king, that's a supernatural testimony. The power's not in how you proclaim it, the power's not in what you say, the power is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's what we share with people. This is good. You guys should be talking back. Paul worked harder, but he wanted his hearers to understand that his capacity to work for the Lord was not his own work ethic, but it was God's unmerited favor in his life. It was God's grace in his life. Uh, look around real quick. Look at people. Here's the crazy thing about this room. There are tons of talented people up in this room. Did you guys know that? Tons of talented people, tons of people that have gifts, tons of overachievers in this room. But if any of us act as if we earned the gift, 
That is to misunderstand the gift giver. Do you hear me? So our testimony is supernatural, not because of all the circumstances. It's supernatural because a resurrected Jesus changed us. His working harder, Paul says, translates more, this is the word that's used, significant toil. It means that there was urgency, that there was relentlessness, not just in the study. He wasn't just a good Bible teacher, even though he was pretty good. He wasn't just good at religious activity. His significant toil was making known that Jesus was alive. Because you run into Jesus on the road to Damascus and everything changes. If you run into a resurrected Jesus who was dead and now is alive, you cannot keep that to yourself like a transformer that we talked about last week. So chapters 9 through 28 of the book of Acts is the narrative, in the book of Acts, we like the book of Acts, is, is the narrative of Paul traveling throughout all of Asia Minor. He gets shipwrecked. He gets beaten. He gets stoned. He gets snake bites. He gets persecution that you and I will probably never have to fully understand, I hope. Paul was an example of what happens when you are sure that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Do you hear me? Paul was sure of it. No one convinced him of it. No one talked him into it. He physically saw Jesus alive after he died, and nothing else mattered. Why? Because Jesus resurrected. And so Paul, you couldn't do anything to Paul. He was a superhero. You just come at Paul, and he's like, I'm going to make much of Jesus no matter what. But that was an example of what happens when you're sure that Christ rose from the dead. You live differently because you know that this life in this decaying earthly body is not all that you get. There is a future life to look forward to. But let's live as if there's an urgency now. Paul lived with eternity in mind. So in verse 11, he says, whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. Preach, there's different words that are used for this, but here it meant herald, it meant to proclaim, it meant to tell and inform others of what? That Jesus was alive. Paul was pointing out that he and the other apostles spoke the same message of the resurrection. They said the same story. It was not, oh, we have this gospel and then Paul has this. We are preaching the same thing is, is what we see throughout scripture from the apostles. In fact, 2 Peter, Peter, uh, let's see, what did Peter do wrong? He stuck his foot in his mouth constantly. He denied Christ three times. He was a little racist after the Holy Spirit came, if you guys notice in Acts chapter 6. Didn't want to eat certain food because, oh, I don't want to eat their kind of food. He was not perfect by any means, and yet many people looked to him. He was the one who preached the least seeker-sensitive sermon ever at Pentecost. You all killed Jesus. Repent. I mean, I kind of say that, but I try to make you laugh first. But Paul's pointing out that he and the other apostles spoke the same message of the resurrection. So in 2 Peter chapter 3, one of my favorite passages of scripture, and I'll show you why in a second. Here's what it says in verse 15. Peter's speaking and he says, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. <laughs> Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him, he writes the same way in all his letters, <laughs> he's got a one-track mind, speaking in them speaking in them of these matters, his letters contain some things that are hard to understand. I love this. Which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. One of the reasons is my favorite, one of my favorite passages of scripture is because it confirms scripture in scripture. 
Peter affirms Paul in his writings. This is because Peter not only references Paul's letters, but he also admits that they're hard to understand. If I'm trying to get you to believe something, I'm painting a rosy picture, but the Bible is so historical. It's not written like, like fiction. It is written with the understanding, hey, go talk to Paul. He's right there. You want to know if Jesus rose? Go talk to that guy. He saw it happen. And so I love that, that Peter references Paul's letters and says that they're hard to understand because they are. Anyone want to go through Romans right now? It's difficult, which is not only very true, but very confirming to the fact that Jesus appointed Paul as an apostle because Peter was like, that's, that's our boy. We trust him. And his words in these letters to the church came with an authority that were to be revered. And to understand that some would attempt to distort the message because they thought that they could as they were doing the same thing to Peter. So here's the, here's the point. With the unity of all the apostles of the message of the gospel is one of the many reasons we can stand confident in what the Bible says and what the gospel is and what it does. Because we have multiple people who saw Jesus alive after he died and they had the same message that they preached. And here's the truth. If, if I see Jesus alive, you want to hear from me. You don't want to hear from my cousin's uh, barber's dog walker, all right? That's not who you want to talk to. You want to talk to someone who was an eyewitness to the situation. And so they all had the same unity of message. Verse 12, and here is where Paul is going to start to break down the argument for how important the resurrection is. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Paul, over the next many verses, is going to make the case that everything rests, everything falls on, everything hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. All of it. See, if the resurrection didn't happen, this property, this three and a half acres, ought to be housing because we need houses up in here, Right? Affordable housing. And some of you were like, that's a good idea. Let's pray for that. No. <laughs> the, the thing is that if the resurrection didn't happen, what we're doing this morning is in vain. If the resurrection didn't happen, what we do throughout the week where we're trying to be devoted to our God who did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves is in vain. It's placebo because Paul is saying everything hinges on the resurrection. All of it. Paul is using a positive and a negative inference that if Christ rose, those found in him rise. If Christ did not rise, we do not rise. And many were arguing not just against Jesus' resurrection, but even those who were included in Christ, that they would never have a resurrection either because Christ didn't rise. Verse 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If resurrections do not happen, then Christ, who we have all testified to, did not rise either. He's explained how the argument of the resurrection does not rest on natural understanding, but on the resurrection of Christ. It all hinges on that. If he rose, we can rise. If he rose, resurrections happen. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. So is your faith. Let that verse sink in for a second. 
think about the fact that Paul has just said, if you want to prove Christianity isn't real, disprove the resurrection. It all hinges on this resurrection. So if Christ didn't rise, your faith is worthless, and so is your preaching. If Jesus didn't rise, listen, if those of you who have identified yourselves with Jesus Christ, you are without hope. Everything you do is placebo. The things that you proclaim, the person you find your identity in, all are worthless if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. It was this verse, actually, as I was studying, trying to disprove Christianity, that this verse was what I believe God used to hijack my eternity. Because I thought about it, and I thought, if you're going to make up a religion, you're going to try to get people to believe in the religion, why would you tell people the way out? I wouldn't. If I'm making a religion to make you believe something, I'm not going to give you arguments in the text of how you can disprove it. Unless the resurrection's the point. Unless it's about the resurrection. See, I didn't believe in Christianity. I didn't believe it was realistic. I did not believe that it was anything more than a belief system that attempted to make us more moral, right? And a little bit holier than thou, unfortunately. And I kind of thought it was the God that Christians had created was just a cosmic killjoy, just wanted to take away pleasure. Then one day, someone challenged me with the resurrection, and I am so glad that they did, (laughs) because it created this work ethic in me. Not because I wanted to know a lot about the resurrection, because I wanted to disprove the resurrection. And so I started to read what these Christians believed, these Christians who I thought were so weird. We are. But I wanted to figure out what this myth was that they believed. So I started to look at what Christians believe, and I started to look at the historical agreements of the resurrection. Not that it happened, but there were certain agreements that something happened in 33 AD, because all of a sudden, everything seemed to change in Jerusalem in the context in which the supposed resurrection happened. And I started to look at the historical agreements, and I started to look at them in contrast to the arguments against the resurrection. Let me just be real. There is no good argument against the resurrection. I'm just putting that out there. Because if there was, I would have figured it out by now. Truly. I have that much confidence in my own flesh that I would have figured it out. But there really is not a good argument against the resurrection. But in this context, I didn't know that. See, I knew that dead people stayed dead. Anyone else? It was just kind of normal. But for some reason, these religious weirdos known as Christians believe that that wasn't always the case, especially with their leader, Jesus. So I started to read about the political climate in Jerusalem in the beginning of the first century. I read about this, this man who had claimed he was God. And I, had some ha- and I had somehow started to read and learn and hear about, not just from the Bible, but from outside sources, about how many followers of this supposed Messiah believed that he was put to death for insurrection, and yet there seemed to be a bunch of questions on if it took And because there had been so much commotion directly after Jesus' death on the cross, where people started to claim that they saw Jesus walking around, they saw him talking with others, they talked to him, they ate with him. Here's the thing, 33 AD, Jesus dies on a cross, I'm sure of that. Something then happened. 
anyone who has ever looked into this has to deal with the fact that something in 33 AD happened after the death of Jesus on a cross, and I'm pretty sure it's not a bunch of people stealing his body and then going to death for it. Going to die because they just wanted to save face. So not only did these early Christians not only claim that Jesus possibly rose from the dead, but their physical responses in the context in which it happened, they were consistent with what would naturally happen if you saw a dead man rise from the dead. You would not keep it to yourself. You would not just go back to work. You would start to tell people that you saw this man alive after you had heard or seen him die on a cross. And they were talking about this. The news of the day in the first century was that Joseph and Mary's son, Jesus, the one who was a carpenter who had become a makeshift rabbi, he had, he had been put to death, yet people are convinced that he resurrected, so much so that the followers of Jesus could not shut up about it. And not only did he resurrect in their thinking, but they kept teaching the Holy Scriptures, the Old Testament to people in the streets and in the marketplace. Can you imagine something this supernatural happens and they're just walking around and they can't keep it to themselves and they're not just going, hey, this weird thing happened. They're saying, look, in the Old Testament, look at the Hebrew scriptures. It says this was gonna happen, y'all. And they couldn't be quiet about it. I started to look at the fact that the Old Testament called it that it had pointed out what this suffering servant was going to be like, what he was going to endure, what he was going to go through, that his days were going to be prolonged. Not only that, but one of the things that always got me was every religion that originated after 33 AD felt like they had to do something with Jesus. That was crazy to me. Why are you bringing up Jesus if he's not that important? Oh, he's a great prophet. No, he's a little more than that. And these different religions felt like they had to do something with Jesus because the resurrection from the beginning of the early church was the point. So I had this 30,000-foot view of Christianity, and it started to make me wonder what could have happened to continue this religion 2,000 years later because I don't think teachings would have done it. I'm pretty sure we're all going to forget every stupid thing Joseph Smith said in about 1,000 years. I hope Jesus comes back sooner. And I don't think the point was teachings. I don't think the point of Jesus was moralism. He was not a dictator, but he was a king. And he had brought a message that was verified by an event. You guys see that? It's not just we believe the Bible because the Bible says it's true. We believe the Bible because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And this does the best job of describing why. C.S. Lewis once said, Christianity, if false is of no importance, and if true, is of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. And so many people that we spend time with, that we do life with, that we see yesterday at a party, we see throughout the week at work, think that Christianity is moderately important. That's a tool of the devil to misunderstand the importance that Jesus is alive. He didn't live the life you couldn't, die the death you should have, and physically rise from the dead so you could be comfortable, church. He did it so you could know him intimately and make others know who he is. The issue is not about the facts. 
The issue is not about the arguments against the facts. The truth, really, for most people, is they're either numb to it. Okay, let me give you an example of numb to it. Uh, people that come to church just on Easter, or maybe Christmas too. We call you Christers, but it's not you because you're here. And what happens if you just come to church on Easter? You hear about the resurrection because we talk about the resurrection. I'm going to teach on Bible hermeneutics this Easter. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, I'm going to teach about the resurrection. It's going to be a different sermon though, I promise. But you think about it, these people come every Sunday, every Easter. They come because they kind of feel this religious pull to do it. Like we're not even advertising in our neighborhood this year. And I guarantee people from our neighborhood are coming on Sunday. People are going to be sitting in your seat. Get over it. All right? But they come and they hear pretty much the same message. I hope. Lived a per Jesus lived a perfect life you couldn't, died a death you should have, physically rose from the dead, and you can repent and trust him and be saved. That's good news. Hallelujah. But what happens when they ignore it? Their heart hardens just a little bit more to the fact and the truth of the gospel. And so people are numb to this truth. People are not numb to the arguments. They're not numb to the, the facts. They're numb to the message. Some people are just agnostic. They just don't care. Eat and drink and live however we want, and tomorrow we'll die. Or they're misled because they believe that Christianity hinges on us. Or it hinges on something outside of the resurrection. Can I preach a little? Anyone, everyone, can we get thumbs up? All right, cool. We don't still celebrate Jesus because he died on a cross. We don't still celebrate him because he was moral. We don't worship him Sundays because of his teachings. We don't give up our lives for him because he seemed to be a great humanitarian. We know of him, we bow down to him, we worship him and exalt him because he is alive. Can I get a witness? He is resurrected. He has defeated the one thing that you and I could never defeat without God's intervention, death. He looked at death and dropped the mic. What? And the foundation of our faith is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the resurrection validates all that God did, will do, and has said. But here's the thing. God used the verses and the things that we've been talking about, this, this passage in particular, to help me logically come to the conclusion that not only did Jesus rise from the dead, but from that, he made me come to the conclusion that God's real. And not only is he real, he spoke to his creation through a book that a lot of us leave in the backseat of our car so the sun can make our covers a little bit more pale. And then we grab it on Sundays. And Jesus did what he did specifically for a reason. To make it so you and I could understand that not only does God exist, but here's some crazy stuff. You ready? He loves you. How often do we forget that he loves us? How often do we forget? Let me, let me, let me be real. Uh, I'm trying to, now I'm checking out who's in here because it was someone I was talking to. They're not here. Perfect. All right. So I was told one day by someone, I think I'm struggling more with, I, I think I believe in Jesus. I'm just not sure I love him. And to be totally honest, 
we have to pay attention to the teachers that we listen to because I called out specifically who he listened to and he goes, how'd you know? Man, I want us to know the facts, church. But I want us to live in confidence of the, the fact that those facts mean that God loves us. If I'm gonna make up a religion, I'm not gonna give people a way out. And yet it seemed like Paul was giving us a way out if the resurrection isn't true. So without this resurrection, none of us, none of what we do for Christ is of any importance. We're following a placebo version of religion that may unfortunately point to some moralism, but is worthless eternally. But with the resurrection, not only can we have hope in this future life, but we can live confidently that Jesus is who he says that he is now. Two weeks ago, I was in a men's Bible study, and we were walking through 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we got to verse 1, and Paul writes it. He's the same writer who writes 1 Corinthians 15, and he's writing these words to the young pastor Timothy, and we studied this one verse for 40 minutes. That's my jam, all right? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says to Timothy, you then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Oh, this is beautiful. But for some of us, we might just see this as like a salutation or just this kind of like, hey, you have nice hair today. Like that's not what Paul is saying. Paul has just explained how in, uh, there were specific people in the passage before, there were specific people that when Paul started to preach, people abandoned him. They stopped being with him. When they saw Paul get arrested, they're like, we're not with him. Remind you of any disciples? And they left him. They did not have his back. But then there was one guy in chapter uh, 1 of 2 Timothy, I can't pronounce his name. There was one guy who did have his back. And so Paul is saying, be strong in the grace of Jesus Christ. And so we spent 40 minutes on this verse, but here's why I bring it up. Because if you've been following Jesus for 14 seconds, because you just got saved and you didn't know it, or if you've been following Jesus since Noah built the ark, you're going to be persecuted. And if you're not confident in the message of the gospel church, you're going to think that persecution matters. And you're going to pay too much attention to it. And you're going to listen to what other people are saying rather than what your God says. So, God's adopted son, God's adopted daughter, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Have confidence in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Have confidence not in your flesh, not in your pleasure. Have confidence like the disciples who were willing to give up their lives for the message of the gospel of grace, and we too... <laughs> ought to look different. We too ought to live different. We too ought to proclaim without a fear of reaction. Well, what if they don't like me? So? We, we too ought to proclaim because the message is true, not because the results are up to us. Because of the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we can live confidently that our service and devotion to him is not in vain. Core, can I talk to you real fast? That's uh, Protestant Club at Santa Clara U. We have a lot of students from there. 
what you guys are doing on the campus is not in vain. Do you hear me? The fact that you care about other students that are far from Jesus, it is not in vain. It might not be as fruitful as you want it to be, but if Jesus rose from the dead, it is not in vain. Stay-at-home moms, as you pour into your kids, even if they can't talk to you, all right? Their first words don't have to be Jesus, all right? It'll probably be mine, all right? That'll probably be what their first words, mine or no. Your labor and your love for your children is not in vain. Ministry workers, those of you that are in ministry, those of you that get paid for ministry, your work is not in vain. And you think that if you're in the church and you're working in the church and you get a, a paycheck from the church, you'd think you'd know that, but sometimes you need to hear it. It's not in vain if Jesus rose from the dead. Everything hinges on that. All right, I have no idea how I got there. Verse 15. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God if he didn't rise. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. One of my favorite things about how stupid people are with the Bible, I'm sorry, how ignorant people are with the Bible, it's the same word. I was talking with someone, and they thought they were a pretty big Bible student. They went to Bible college, but they didn't love Jesus, which seems like a waste of time. But we were talking, and I remember looking at this verse with them, and they go, look, even the Bible says Jesus didn't rise from the dead. I'm like, what? And he goes, look, right here. But he did not raise him. And he underlined it and squared and put a rectangle around it. And I said, except for what was said right before and what was said right after. He's like, no, 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 it's set. This is how some of us look at scripture. We cherry pick these verses and we're like, well, it says this, but we don't look at the context. Context is king. Context is king. Oh, I could just make fun of that all day, but I want, my son wants McDonald's. All right, <laughs> Paul is stating again that if re the resurrection of Jesus did not happen, those of us who identify with Jesus... As Christians, we are false witnesses. Here's another word for false witness because we rarely call each other that, but we call each other the other one, liars. We are liars. We are pointing people towards something that is in vain if Jesus did not rise from the dead. One of the most terrifying responsibilities as a pastor in general, but specifically for me at Church of the Valley, is to be one of the teachers of God's word to point you to the truth that is found in the Bible and to do so in context without adding my preference to get it to say what I want it to say. Um, there are things in this book that should offend us. There are things in this book that should offend our depraved culture and as we continue to study this book together and individually, we should not just read this book, but we should allow this book to read us. I was meeting with one of my mentors this week, and we were talking about how culture tends to dictate how we read scripture. <laughs> we may see something in it that we don't agree with, but do we disagree with it because of culture or because of a biblical conviction? Is it a cultural conviction or a biblical conviction? And 
as with the responsibility that I have as one of the pastors here in this community, I will, okay, all right, oh, this, oh, oh, okay, deep breath. I will not be judged by God for how many people are here. You can judge me for that all the time. I'm not afraid of you. I will not be judged by God for how many people show up. I will not be judged by God for how much money is given in this community. I will be judged by God for how I stewarded his word and those who have bought into this community. There's fear in me because of that. I don't want to act the fool. I don't want to be stupid. I don't want to point you towards something the text doesn't say. One of my favorite things about this church is there's a bunch of people in this community. Karen Miller is probably one of my favorites that would call me out if she heard something she didn't agree with. And then we're going to talk about it in dialogue. And I appreciate that. That doesn't mean we all need to be critical. We shouldn't be Googling stuff while I'm preaching. Relax. But if you heard something that challenges your spirit, let's have a conversation. But sometimes the thing that's challenging your spirit is because we actually said what it said and you had never heard that before. Ooh, that was good. So are we going to point you to the truth that's found in Scripture or do we attempt to get you to believe what benefits our organization the most through cultural interpretation? I promise we will not do that. I believe the Bible as it was originally written, every word of it, I do. And that's not popular in this time in history. Did you guys know that? Like being a Bible believer is not popular? (laughs) Weird. Because it wars against absolute truth. This culture wars against the idea that there could be something that's actually true. Because they think that people misuse the Bible. Spoiler, oh yeah, people misuse the Bible a lot. It started with Satan in the garden. He misinterpreted God's words. That was good. I don't know where that came from. That was nice. I didn't know that. And we in our flesh want to get the Bible to either be a moral battering ram for people that don't act good, or we want the Bible to justify our own transgressions because God is love and he forgives. Listen, he is love. He loves you. But that doesn't mean he condones our sin. He loves us enough to send the Redeemer and the Restorer to draw us. He loves us enough to, for us to come as we are, but he also loves us enough to not let us stay where we are. So why do I believe this book? I already said it. I believe that the Bible is true because Jesus rose from the dead and the Bible does the best job of describing why. So don't, oh, well, did Jesus go into this city or did he go into this city? Because this gospel says this and this. Shut up. Did Jesus rise from the dead? That's the most important question you'll ever have to answer when it comes to facts. Do you believe and trust that Jesus rose from the dead? Because without the resurrection, we are found unbelievably hopeless and incredibly worthless in our efforts. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. That was a Trek reference for Daniel. And not only is a lack of resurrection of the dead and of Christ one that makes our faith useless, but it also makes what we are attempting to do by making known that Jesus is the Christ insufficient because we are still in need of our Savior. We are still in need of someone to pay for our sins if Christ is not risen from the dead. 
See, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, we all get what we deserve. That's justice for our sin. But as we, as we taught last week, we don't get what we deserve in Christ. We get grace. We get what we don't deserve in a gift which we cannot earn, we cannot attain, and we cannot win, but it can be gifted to us. And because it's a gift, because the cross of Christ is a gift, because the resurrection of Jesus is a gift, because the gospel is a gift, the question is, have you opened it? Have you received this gift? Have you been adopted by God? Is he your parent? Is he your father? Or is he just a babysitter who you don't really respect? Listen, someone's going to pay for your sin. It's either going to be you or Jesus. That's the eternal question. Who's going to pay for your sin? You or Jesus? And if the re- and if it is the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of Jesus that validates that we have been forgiven and provides the evidence that we are able to even see spiritual things, to understand and obey what the word says supernaturally. It is through the resurrection of Jesus that we inherit eternal life. Because he died, we can live. Because he rose, we will rise. Death doesn't win anymore because of Jesus' resurrection. Sin doesn't get to bully us anymore because Christ. We're with him. Verse 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. So to believe that the resurrection of the dead did not take place is to assume that everyone who has trusted Christ before you, they are without hope. It was a waste of time. Their belief in Jesus did not matter. They are eternally separated from God if Jesus has not resurrected. One pastor once said, everyone goes to heaven at a funeral. And that's not actually true, but the point is that that's how we talk about it. Well, they were a good person. Since when does being a good person make you stand righteous before God? And so we say these things at funerals mostly to help our own grieving process. I don't love death. I don't think anyone does. But I appreciate funerals. I appreciate funerals because they're an opportunity for those of us who are still living to reflect on our own mortality. We usually live as if we're invincible. If you're under 30, would you raise your hand real fast? Yeah, you think you're invincible. You're not. Your body's going to decay, just letting you know. (laughs) And we live as if we're immortal. But at a memorial, at a funeral, we are faced with the reality that death is real, that death is coming. And we are often more open to the idea that the resurrection could be real. Not because we're good enough do we have a relationship with God or lucky enough, but it's because God is good enough to throw us a life preserver in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So have we taken it? Have we received it? Verse 19, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. If only in this life we have hope in Christ, if Christ only matters in this life and not in the life to come, 
Have you ever heard, well, what does it matter? This is like an argument I've heard Christians share with people that aren't Christians. Well, if, I mean, what does it matter? If I'm wrong, I lived a really good life, but if you're wrong, you go to H-E double hockey sticks. That's the argument. That's a stupid argument. Here's why it's a stupid argument. Because we think that our moral life matters. Listen, Christianity is not about the kind of life you live, but the person who you live it for. So we mustn't believe that this is all we get. But we, we get to be living a life that is founded and rooted in Jesus, in his life, his death, and his resurrection. To miss the point of Christianity is something I fear so much for myself and for those who hear me and those that are a part of this community and the people that I influence. I don't want us to miss it. I don't want us to read the Bible and do good things because those things do not require the Holy Spirit. You know what I'm saying? The Holy Spirit's intervention, what does it do? It leads to confession. It leads to repentance. It leads to obedience to God's word. It leads to humility. These are things that the Spirit of God produces and the flesh produces death. Francis Chan once said, our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. Come on, Francis. And if Christ is not risen from the dead, our devotion to him is dead. It's placebo. It's in vain. But how much more should we devote our entire lives to him if the resurrection happened? And it's what really matters. I don't want us to do more activity. I don't want us to be more religious. I want us to be more preoccupied with Jesus. Here's what I mean. Not just have you thought about him today. But have you thought about what he wants you to do in every situation that comes in your way? Do you bring him into big conversations or do you pray for him to fix stuff after you've made a bad decision? Woohoo! Dang! Sorry, I had Starbucks this morning and I'm all jittery. I don't know what happened. No peeps. So Paul says we ought to be pitied more than all people if we have trusted in a re resurrectionless Christianity. With no resurrection comes no life. But we do not have to be pitied. This is like where the drums start going a little bit faster and we start to sing. And We do not have to be pitied. We do not have to think that our effort is in vain as long as we know that we are signed for and sealed by God and his resurrection. Verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Hear me, because he lives, we can live. It's that easy. He has been resurrected. He has tasted death and defeated it. So for many of us, we want to ask questions. We want to be skeptics. We would rather attempt to have the resurrection proven to us than bow down and repent. But you and I, we don't need to know every answer to every question. We'll never know every answer to every question. We must trust the linchpin that holds the entire belief system together. God is not afraid of your questions, but as we said last week, apologetics, answers exist to remove excuses and expose the rebellious heart. So think about your questions. Are they actually a stumbling block to your belief or are they just an excuse so you don't have to bow down to Jesus? When questioned about my beliefs, I am yet to have a discussion that didn't end up with me bringing up the resurrection. I'm a one-trick pony. 
discussing the proof, discussing the power, and discussing the purpose because of it. And people tend to either repent or wander away. I don't want you to wander away, but only God can draw you. I can't stop you from wandering, but as Christians, our job is to be prepared with an answer because we believe wholeheartedly that Jesus rose physically from the dead and we put all our eggs in that Easter basket. Romans 10 verse 9, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So do you proclaim this because it's sunk in or do you proclaim it just because you think that's part of the message? Has the resurrection actually changed you? The resurrection doesn't mean you're a better version of yourself. You're not 2.0 Malik. But you are a new creation, new, alive, not dead, not upgraded, but new. Let me have the Bible tell you that. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, Paul says in, to the church in Corinth, for Christ's love compels us. See what I did there? Because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he, Jesus, died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was what? Raised again. The resurrection means that you no longer live for yourself. You don't have to. And here's the truth. When, the Holy, when you receive the Holy Spirit as a gift from God, you don't want to. You live for the one who died and rose again. And then he continues, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. We don't, we don't idolize people because of their earthly talent. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Verse 17, this is a tattoo verse. You guys ready? Therefore, what's the therefore? Therefore, because he rose. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. <laughs> Hallelujah. I don't want to be who I was. I don't want to clean myself up. I want to be new in Christ Jesus alone. And so if he has not risen, you're not a new creation. You don't get to start over spiritually. But Jesus didn't come to make us better versions of ourselves. He came to make us alive and new.